0: This podcast is brought to you by the South China Morning Post.
1: Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics podcast in a week where I find myself struggling to find the right word to describe this many international summits in the past 10 days. With the culmination of this weekend's APEC meeting, will we have reached the apex, the pinnacle? Did we indeed witness the acme of summits in Bali this week? After an ASEAN meeting which came up with nothing in terms of action on the crisis in Myanmar and a symbolic attendance by US President Joe Biden and his signing of a symbolic ASEAN-US comprehensive strategic partnership, we've seen the news cycle not so much dominated by the G20 as by the appearance of China's President Xi Jinping and his rigorous schedule of sideline meetings with leaders from around the world. And of course, because it's 24 hours since world leaders flew out of Bali, the 24-hour news cycle is now dominated by a candid discussion between Xi Jinping and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, caught on camera and tweeted out last night. Everything we discussed has been leaked to the paper, that's not the problem. You're listening to Xi Jinping and his translator scolding Justin Trudeau for supposedly leaking details of their 10-minute informal meeting to the media an unscripted moment among days of carefully crafted speechmaking.
2: Let's create the conditions first. Right.
1: But that was only one of the diversions to the G20 agenda, which was supposed to be all about the global food supply and security, but instead was overtaken by news of a missile strike in Poland and the meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Now you might be familiar with a quote attributed to former UK Prime Minister Harold Wilson, that a week is a long time in politics. But let's review a week in geopolitics. One week ago, the People's Daily, a newspaper known as the Chinese Communist Party mouthpiece, carried photos of Xi Jinping in army fatigues, visiting a military command center and quoted as saying China's army must, quote, comprehensively strengthen military training in preparation for war. This week, we saw Xi Jinping without a mask, shaking hands and smiling with US President Joe Biden before entering a room for a three-hour meeting ending with a readout from the U.S. side which said both Presidents Biden and Xi reiterated their agreement that nuclear nuclear war war should never be fought and and can can never never be won won and underscored their opposition opposition to to the use use or or threat threat of use of of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Ukraine, which was certainly good news for those of us getting depressed by the almost daily appearance of the word Armageddon in our news feeds. And given the constant refrain that US-China tensions had never been so high, and the diplomatic relations so low, it was tremendously significant that both leaders met face to face for the first time in a long time. Here's what they had to say when the cameras were still allowed in the room. The world expects that China and the United States will properly handle the relationship. Our meeting has attracted the world's attention, so we need to work with all countries to bring more hope to
2: world peace, greater confidence to global stability, and strong impetus to global development. We share responsibility, in my view, to show that China and the United States can manage our differences prevent competition from becoming anything ever near conflict. And to find ways to work together on urgent global issues that require our mutual cooperation. So President Xi, I look forward to our continuing and ongoing open and honest dialogue we've always
1: had. The G20 was Xi's second ever excursion outside of mainland China in the last two and a half years. And that's what we're focusing on in this episode. First with our reporter Kinling Lowe speaking from a slightly chaotic media room in a Bali hotel about what she saw and heard over the last three days. And you'll also hear from my colleague Shi Zhengtao about the view from the China Watchers, analysts and diplomacy specialists about what they saw and heard over the past couple of days, and whether we've just witnessed a significant change in the Beijing-Washington relationship, or if it's just a burst of sunshine as the storm clouds continue to gather. Let's get amongst it. My colleague Kinling Lo has been part of the South China Morning Post reporting team in Bali, keeping up with everything that's been happening in and around these meetings at the G20 of a media centre there in Bali. Hello, Kinling.
0: Hello from Bali.
1: Now, Keeling, I'm speaking to you on a Wednesday after what must be a very hectic end to these last three days. There's the official statement issued by the G20 today, but before I wind back the clock to Monday and this meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, can I pick up today's rather interesting sideline news? Because Xi Jinping has set a cracking pace with his sideline meetings with other leaders this week but it seems he's cancelled the one scheduled for today with UK's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. What's happened there?
0: Yeah, actually, uh, we still don't know officially what happened, but according to the Downing Street, they are saying that it's been cancelled due to scheduling issues It was supposed to happen around two hours earlier, which would be right after the summit officially ends. And we were paying a lot of attention to it because it would have been the first time the head of states of these two countries meet in five years. I mean, I didn't realize how long it was, but the last time a British prime minister met the Chinese president, it was in February 2018 when Theresa May paid a visit to Beijing. And so after that, basically, there was no official bilateral meetings held. And so it would have been a very important meeting between the two countries, especially given the rocky relationship the past few years. With tensions from concerns all over the place, basically Beijing was seeing Britain as siding, with the US on foreign policy most of the time. Also that with the protests happening in Hong Kong, which is a former British colony, um, the two governments obviously have very diverging views on it. And and so it would have been a first in, in many ways. And so up to now, there was a press conference held by Sunak after the summit ended, but uh, he didn't address the issue. And the Chinese foreign ministry also um, did not give an answer to that in the regular press briefing, they just said they they hope to have a constructive relations with the UK, which is not really anything new. So um, we don't know. But another thing we know is that this might not be the only meeting that was canceled because we were also expecting a bilateral meeting between Xi Jinping and the Prime Minister of Italy, uh, Giorgio Meloni, who's uh, also new in the office. So these are obviously not happening. Uh, anymore I think and, and um, Xi Jinping right now is meeting the Indonesian leader Jokowi instead
1: and it's interesting because Rishi Sunak had really dialed up his tough on China rhetoric as he threw his hat in the ring to be the latest prime minister over these last few weeks but let's just sort of recap just how many meetings did Xi Jinping have on the sidelines this week it sounds like he had a really hectic
2: schedule
0: I would think that this must be quite tiring for him because this is his second international meeting that he attended in person ever since the pandemic in 2020. Uh, So basically, he was not out for any overseas trip until September this year. The last international meeting he was at was um, the China-led Shanghai Corporation Organization meeting in uh, Uzbekistan. And so this time at G20, it seems to me like it's a marathon of, of of meetings with, with heads of states, um, and the heads of states, obviously, are keen to meet him uh, for so many different reasons. I was counting from a foreign ministry website, so up to now, um, on Wednesday afternoon, there were officially 11 bilateral meetings with heads of states. Obviously, we know that the first and most high-profile meeting of all was his first in-person meeting with uh, U.S. President Joe Biden on Monday, which happened before the two-day summit began in Bali. And he also met his French Counterpart uh, Macron. He also met with the Australian PM, Anthony Albanese, and South Korean President, Yoon Suk Yoo. So, together with the current meeting he's having with Jokowi, that would be at least 12 head of state meetings already. Well, 11 maybe because Sergei Lavrov from Russia was the foreign minister. Putin didn't come himself.
1: And of course, the meeting with the Australian prime minister was the first meeting in six years with an Australian leader. So that was a significant shift in tone, or at least signalling a change in what's been a diplomatic freeze between Beijing and Australia. But let me get back to Monday and this meeting of the Chinese and American leaders. It wasn't just Joe Biden and Xi Jinping in the room, was it? Each leader had quite the delegation with them. Can you set the scene for us about who was there along with Xi Jinping?
0: Sure, to us as China foreign policy watchers, because of the opaqueness of, you know, Chinese politics, it's obviously really important for us to observe who was in it and who's not, especially because Xi Jinping has just secured his unprecedented third term in the 20th Party Congress last month. He brought along with him actually uh, a family of faces. But uh, these people have uh, risen above the ranks uh, from the party congress, so uh, their positions have been elevated, I'd say. A usual face include his chief of staff, Ding Xuexiang, who has been promoted to the seven-member Politburo Standing Committee, which is the top decision-making body in the entire Chinese politics hierarchy. And Ding has accompanied Xi on most of his trips in the past years, but he's known as one of the most trusted aides. And so we can see that after the promotion, this is his basically first overseas trip for him as well. And he's the second highest ranking member after Xi on the table. And we can expect to see him in a lot of these diplomatic occasions in the future, I think. Other than that, uh, Wang Yi, the foreign minister, was also there. Wang Yi was also promoted. We expect him to be named China's top diplomat sooner or later. He would take over profile from Yang Jiechi, who was the counterpart of Secretary of State Antony Blinken in many previous U.S.-China talks when the top leaders were not meeting. So he would continue to be very important but interestingly somebody we thought would be there was not and that was chinese ambassador to the us Gong he was seen as uh, a top contender to succeed wang yi later on but then we haven't really figured out why he was not present the meeting went on for three and a half hours and i was standing there outside of the hotel waiting the chinese side obviously never really released any schedule but from what the white house released ahead of the meeting uh the meeting was scheduled at 5 30. And I think it took place quite on time. But uh, Biden's then after a press conference was delayed until very late night. So a lot must have been talked about. Although, I mean, the translation would also take time. But I feel like it would be a good, solid time for such a meeting to take place.
1: Well, let's talk about what we know they spoke about. There's been a readout, as they call it, issued by the White House of the discussion. Not an exact transcript And interestingly, I'm just seeing a a video going viral uh, on the sidelines of the G20 where Xi Jinping has given the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a bit of a dressing down for the details of their meeting getting leaked to the Canadian media. But we always knew what was going to be a central subject of this meeting between Xi and Biden, and that is the Taiwan question, as we've seen reported so many times. Xi Jinping has previously indicated he's willing to send in the PLA to invade and reunite by force. Biden has said he will order the US military to respond if that happens. What do we know of their discussions about Taiwan?
0: according to the white house biden has raised concerns about uh, what china would deem as the most you know one of the most sensitive issues uh, xinjiang tibet hong kong and uh, human rights more broadly but especially on taiwan um uh, the White House statement on what Biden said to Xi Jinping on Taiwan uh, was quite extensive compared to the other issues. But it was more of a repeated narrative where he said, our one China policy hasn't changed. The U.S. opposes unilateral changes to status quo made by either side and wants peace and stability in Taiwan. But in the press conference that follows the meeting, Biden actually said that he doesn't think there's any imminent attempt by China to invade Taiwan. Uh, We all know that Biden in a few times in the past has said that US forces would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. So so his latest speech on Taiwan was happening um, as such a backdrop. Beijing is obviously very alert of his narrative. Any tiny changes would matter.
1: Now, Kindling, it's somewhat ironic that a missile landing in Poland shattered the peace and goodwill vibes at this conference because it's been the steady stream of missiles out of North Korea that have been cause for concern on this side of the world over the past weeks and months. How was that addressed by Mr. Biden and Mr. Xi?
0: So, the North Korea's nuclear threats are another hot topic during the summit. According to the White House readout, Biden raised concerns of Russia's threats of nuclear use and also said that they are very concerned about DPRK's tests recently. But then the Chinese statement didn't really give a clear reference to DPRK. But in Wang Yi's follow-up explanation and what the bilateral meeting was about, Wang Yi did say that Xi Jinping made it clear that nuclear weapons cannot be used and nuclear war should never, never be fought. So on that, they definitely had a consensus. And on Ukraine specifically, China also said they want peace and would continue to push for peace talks.
1: Of course, Kindling, we reported that Xi Jinping had joined with Joe Biden to condemn the use of nuclear weapons, to condemn the threat of using nuclear weapons, but hanging over this entire conference was, of course, the shadow of Russia's war on Ukraine, its invasion. It's encouraging that they're on the same page about nuclear weapons, but there's very different positions about Ukraine, or or indeed positions about Russia, expressed in this conference. What can you tell us about that?
0: One of the most watched points about this G20 in Bali this year was basically how countries attending have very different views on Ukraine. And of course, because Russia is a member of the G20. In fact, Russian Foreign Minister Larov has sat there the entire time throughout the section where Ukrainian President Zelensky was invited to speak to the G20 leaders through a video link on the first day of the summit. We weren't allowed into the meeting room, obviously. It was a closed-door session. But according to some agency reports, the Russian foreign minister did sit through the entire speech that Zelensky was giving. The country's conflicted position on Russia's war in Ukraine was displayed in many ways, including the fact that even during the first day of a leadership lunch, It was supposed to be a more casual setting, I guess. And the Olympic Committee's chair was invited to speak. And even in that speech, he condemned Russia's moves in Ukraine in front of Larov before everybody's lunch. So I thought that was pretty telling of how this issue is really on top of everybody's concerns. And during the summit, people were wondering whether the final declaration released from G20 would actually address the war ongoing in Ukraine. And in the end, to some people's surprise, it did. In the declaration, I quote here, most members strongly condemned the war in Ukraine and stressed it is causing immense human suffering and exacerbating existing fragilities in the global economy. And it was surprising in a way because... It essentially meant that this part of the statement was approved by Russia. I mean, of course, Putin wasn't personally there, but Lavrov was his representative. But Lavrov was his representative, obviously. Killing,
1: I can hear you are surrounded by people pushing squeaky trolleys and various other people sort of cleaning up there in the media room. Let me just finish by bringing this back to the meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden on Monday. As I said, it's really encouraging that both leaders are on the same page about the mutually assured destruction that is offered by a war with nuclear weapons, but their countries are still not talking to each other at a military level or an environmental level following Beijing's reaction to the visit by Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan back in August. Were there any solid actions announced to re-establish relations at that level?
0: Yeah, before this in-person meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping, both sides have tried to manage expectations to keep it low. For example, by White House already saying there would not be any joint statements. But turns out they seem to have some substantial progress on at least uh, certain communication channels. Biden has said that Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, and his defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, would be engaging with their counterparts from China, although we don't really know what that means in reality. But I think it basically meant that at least these were talked about and in a more substantial move. Biden did say that the two sides will be working to schedule a trip for Secretary of State Antony Blinken and the State Department and followed up to say that it could happen next year.
1: Kinling, you've had three sleepless nights and three very, very busy days running around after the world's leaders at the G20 meeting. Thank you kindly for your reporting. We've been following it on SEMP.com along with the rest of the reporting team. Look forward to more reports from you. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you, Jared.
1: As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Xi Jingtao is the veteran China diplomacy correspondent for the South China Morning Post and a fairly regular guest here on the podcast. Tao, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Thank you, Jared. Now, before we talk about the specifics of what Xi Jinping said and did at this G20 meeting, can I speak with you about the optics, the image that Xi Jinping essentially broadcast to the world? Our first sighting of him in Bali was as he stepped off the plane Waving, not wearing a mask, and every image we've seen of him inside at the G20 conference, he was without a mask. Tao, am I reading too much into this, or was he showing the world his attitude to COVID has changed?
2: Uh, No, I think you're right. This trip is quite different in this regard from his previous one, when Xi Jinping traveled outside China for the first time since the COVID-19 pandemic to Central Asia, in September. Uh, Wearing masks was a main feature of that trip. Unlike this G20 and APEC APAC trip, he did not take his wife to Central Asia. He wore masks and did not shake hands with his hosts when he was greeted at the airports by leaders of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. It was not until he later arrived in Samarkand, for the summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, that the Chinese leader relaxed a bit and took off his masks when he held talks with Russia's uh, Vladimir Putin and posed for group photos. I'm sure he wants to present a positive image as this is his inaugural trip after his sweeping victory at the Communist Party's 20th National Congress. He was visibly more cautious when he was in Central Asia two months ago, when he had been preoccupied with the all-important leadership reshuffle. But this time in Bali, we can see he has emerged stronger after his successful concentration of power. When he held one-on-one with Biden and 11 other world leaders, including those from France, Italy, Australia, Indonesia, South Korea, Argentina, South Africa, and Senegal. He talked more confidently about China's political system and China's future role in the world. That being said, I think it's a bit premature to conclude, his attitude toward COVID has changed. There have been a lot of discussions in China at the moment about whether Xi and his hand-picked new leadership would ease harsh COVID restrictions after the party congress, as many had anticipated. Although the leadership in Beijing announced some new measures last week, including cutting quarantines by two days for inbound travelers, there are mixed and sometimes conflicting signs so far. And we have yet to see major policy changes that could lead to an opening of the country after nearly three years of largely self-imposed destructive isolation and chaos. And I think it's fair for people to remain skeptical. Xi himself has been adamant about his zero COVID policy and the party's mouthpiece People's Daily vowed on Tuesday to stick to the zero tolerance approach. It is also worth noting that his entire entourage, including his chief of staff and his newly promoted Foreign Minister Wang Yi, all wore masks throughout the event, except he and his wife.
1: Well, that's right, Jingtao. It was really interesting to see that, as you say, she not only brought his wife along to this G20 event, uh, he met with 11 different world leaders in three days and is meeting tonight with Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida for the first time in three years, it really does look like he's gone out of his way to re-establish relations and re-establish his image as a leader for China around the world. But is there something significant we should see from him meeting Prime Minister Kashida at APEC instead of G20?
2: Yes, actually, according to some Chinese experts i talked to, it's a kind of uh, a downgrade of uh, Kashida from China's perspective because G20 is is a much more important global occasion than APEC, which is a regional gathering where President Biden and uh, many other Western world leaders will not attend. I think it's a pity that uh, China chose to do so, but uh, it's not uh, very surprising because uh, early this year, when they celebrate um, the 50th anniversary of the normalization of uh, China-Japan ties, uh, neither side appeared in the mood for grand celebration, and it also underscored the reality of the, the status of the bilateral ties, as they grown increasingly adversarial, just like the U.S.-China ties, amid heightened tensions in the Taiwan Strait and the U.S.-China divide, and on top of their rifts over territorial disputes and wartime past.
1: Well, that is very interesting, Jiang and. We've documented on this podcast previously just the scale of Japan's military build-up, uh, essentially in response to the tensions across the Taiwan Strait. But let me turn to this meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. In the lead-up to the G20 and this particular meeting, this face-to-face meeting, you filed an analysis piece about what was being expected. And if I may quote from one of your sources, they thought the meeting, quote, offers a good photo opportunity, but will not yield any meaningful results. The cameras are turned off, the people have flown out of Bali. What are sources and analysts that you speak to saying in the wake of this three and a half hour meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe
2: Biden? Uh, it's a good question, uh, Jared. I think it's, uh, the assessment of this kind of leadership meetings depends largely on what you expect. Uh, It's interesting that a lot of people are already talking optimistically about the US-China ties after Xi and Biden displayed a warmer than expected tone in Bali and talked about cooperation on climate change and other global challenges. That's true, but it's not the whole truth. Both countries have actually hardened their confrontational stance in the lead up to the summit. In his national security strategy, Biden called out China as the most consequential geopolitical challenge to America and the world order in spite of Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine and called for the strongest and broadest coalition of nations to outcompete China in a decisive decade and she in his main party congress speech warned of high winds choppy waters and even dangerous storms and said external attempts to surprise and contain China may escalate at any time without naming the US. If we expect a single summit to change the fundamentals in their increasingly adversarial bilateral ties and find solutions to their structural rivalry, we're set to be disappointed. I don't think that sense of optimism is well justified either, because Xi and Biden largely talked past each other on all the important issues and then tried to spin in their own favor afterwards what have been achieved. We've had a lot of lessons in the past when we tend to take seriously what leaders said at bilateral and multilateral occasions at face value. But the lack of communications between the two governments, especially a face-to-face meeting between top leaders, is indeed worrying. So the fact that they finally met for the first time since Biden took office over 20 months ago is an achievement, especially from the Chinese perspective. Xi, who has become China's most powerful leader after Mao Zedong, needs those international summits, which may be high on symbolism and low on substance, but grant him all the pomp and pageantry and international recognition that he needs of his domestic political victory. Uh, For both leaders, domestic political and economic rules remain their top priority, And they both need relatively stable U.S.-China ties after months of dangerous tensions over Taiwan, Xinjiang, human rights, ideological rifts, and Washington's newly imposed export controls threatening to harbor China's semiconductor chips industry. So going into the summit, I think both Biden and Xi knew exactly that they should at least aim at lowering tensions, putting a floor under their fraught ties, and keeping lines of communication open, something that could be pitched to different audiences at home and abroad. But it remains to be seen if the detente can last long and how much time the new rapport can buy both sides before a new round of tensions mount again, especially on Taiwan. It is also interesting to watch how both sides would implement the outcome of the summit. Uh, Some experts I talked to are more optimistic, saying that the summit can buy at least three to six months for both sides. Another analyst uh, I talked to who is based in Washington said uh, the summit itself is not a watershed moment in bilateral ties. Although it is important in terms of demonstrating to the world, the two countries can still engage with each other. According to another European expert, Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State's uh, China visit, early next year will be important for both sides because. We'll be able to see if China's really interested in lowering tensions, and we'll also be able to see if top issues such as climate change, health, food, and global governance can be depoliticized.
1: Zhang Tao, the experts are saying that nothing concrete was agreed to other than you know Secretary of State Anthony Blinken will make a, uh, a visit to mainland China sometime early next year. But this statement that was attributed to both Xi and Biden that they both agreed that a nuclear war should never be fought, it can never be won, and underscored their opposition to the use or threat of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. How significant was that, do you think?
2: I think we should remain cautious here because China is obviously struggling to find its balance between the need to mend ties with the US and its allies and its strategic decision to align with Russia and other autocratic nations to counter the West. China's stance on nuclear weapons is not new, I think. Some may see China's nuclear statement and its decision to sign onto the G20 joint declaration after the summit as a victory for the West. But I think it's uh, it's a bit far-fetched to say China's looking away from Moscow. I think China simply did not want to spoil the occasion and be blamed again as the culprit to derail the entire summit. China does not need to defend Moscow all the time, especially in the absence of Putin. Actually, many experts are saying Putin's absence at G20 is a great opportunity for China and for Xi himself to shine on international state. And after all, China's views are included in the final declaration, because according to the declaration, it says, there were other views and different assessments of the situation and sanctions.
1: Can I just jump in and interrupt here, Zhang Tao? What about the meeting between Sergei Lavrov, uh, Russia's foreign minister, and Wang Yi, his counterpart from China? How does this put a different view to this idea that you know China was on board with the G20 statement on Ukraine?
2: Exactly. I think it's a very good question. It's underlying China's dilemma on Russia and uh, the war in Ukraine. Actually, Wang Yi tried to reassure Moscow about China's no-limit partnership with Moscow. Wang Yi said China welcomed recent Russian comments denying it might use nuclear weapons over Ukraine.
1: And of course, while the G20 meeting was going ahead on this side of the world, back on the other side of the world in New York at the United Nations General Assembly, there was a vote about Ukraine but China took the side of Russia.
2: Yes, exactly. I think that's uh, another sign that China's stance on Russia's war in Ukraine has not changed. Although the final declaration included the wording of "war," which Washington Post actually reported that China is strongly opposed to. China was among fourteen countries that voted against the United Nations uh, resolution on Monday, calling for Russia to be held accountable for its conduct in Ukraine and to pay for the damages for the war. The resolution was supported by 94 of the assembly's 193 members. 73 countries abstained. So with China's stance on Russia's invasion of Ukraine largely unchanged, I don't think it's clear that uh, the new rapport between Beijing and Washington could last long or could do anything, could could make a, a real difference to China's ties with the West.
1: Well, Zhang Tao, you talk about this rapport might not last long. Some of your expert sources have said maybe it's three to six months. But can I finish here with a discussion or a mention of something you've written about in lead-up to this G20 meeting? And that's the concept of the G2. Because it's uh, it was something that was proposed about 13 years ago by the American geostrategist Zbigniew Brzezinski, where he tried to define US-China ties as a comprehensive partnership. And you labelled it a missed opportunity for China back then. Here we are, we're looking at Russia being isolated, if not shunned by the global community. Is this another opportunity? Can you tell us a bit more about this idea of the G2? Would there be a hope that it could be reinvigorated?
2: Yes, I think there's a good chance that uh, it can come back. But it will be a different uh, G2 than those experts suggested uh, more than 10 years ago. I think the U.S.-China rivalry and the Russia's invasion of Ukraine have changed the world in many ways, with the emergence of these two opposing camps led by Washington and China, respectively. And that's why we are seeing a lot of debate about what's next after the end of America's unipolar moment, especially with China's rapid rise and the steady decline of U.S.-led liberal international order. But we still don't know for sure if this emerging bipolar order would replace the existing international order. Actually, uh, the original G2 concept was popular in the wake of the 2008 global financial crisis. I think the original idea was designed to redefine U.S.-China relations as a comprehensive partnership to avoid a destructive clash of civilizations by conferring a near peer status to China. They say it would encourage Beijing to play by the rules and thus encourage cooperation rather than zero-sum competition. The reason why I said it's a missed opportunity because China rejected flatly at that time. Uh, The G2 initiative is a rare one If China had accepted the G2, it could have changed the history of bilateral ties and the entire world. And also, I think the G2 concept was basically in line with Beijing's aspirations to be recognized as a respected global player on a par with Washington. But unfortunately, China was not ready a decade ago for such a global leadership role. Although at the time, it already surpassed the U.S. as the world's uh, top carbon polluter. And then in 2010, overtook Japan as the world's uh, second largest economy. Because from Beijing's perspective, at least back then, uh, the G2 concept was just another trap, US trap designed to harbor China's rights with unfair share of global responsibility.
1: And of course, Zheng Tao, I'm just reminded that in 2009, the vice president for the US was a guy called Joe Biden. So you maybe there's a chance we can come back, given Xi Jinping has stepped forward as he has at the G20 to show leadership with a renewed leadership, given his confirmation for a historic third term as China's leader. Maybe this is a a new chance to revisit that concept it's always fascinating and educational to speak with you, Jack So thank you once again for coming onto the podcast. And as always, we will look to scmp.com for your latest analysis pieces. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jared. That's all for this episode. But the analysis, the discussion and the reporting continues from our 24-hour newsroom at scmp.com. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at scmpnews. Of course, our Asia desk, our China desk and our political economy desk reporters are all working overtime as world leaders, including Xi Jinping, fly from Bali to Bangkok for the APEX summit. While Joe Biden won't be there, his vice president Kamala Harris will be. And just for a bit of a conversation starter, before she gets to Bangkok, she's stopping off on the westernmost Philippine island of Palawan, just 300 kilometres from the Spratly Islands parts of which are claimed by Brunei, Malaysia, the Philippines, Taiwan and Vietnam, but are currently inhabited by a large contingent of Chinese military and construction people, busily maintaining the airstrips and hubs they've built. As always, there's a lot to talk about. It's great to have your company. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.